Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning, everyone. Glad to have everybody in this room. Glad to have all of you who are watching us live stream. All right, our worship, our call to worship comes from 1 Samuel 22, 2 Samuel 22 today. I hope you talked about a lot of this in your groups. But let's stand, and as we're concluding um, David's call to us to worship, as we've been looking at the Psalms he wrote over the course of second, 1 and 2 Samuel, this is the song that he wrote as a part of 2 Samuel. And I just thought these words were particularly poignant um, as we are concluding the study to think about. So let's read them aloud and then we'll pray together. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So let's think about that for a minute and just silent prayer and meditation, and then I'll close us in prayer. Oh God, we join our heart hearts with David, who declares that you are our lamp, that God, you lighten our darkness, and you have done that in a beautiful way as we have read these books of Samuel, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us as a refuge and a strength, as, as the only God who is trustworthy, as the only one who we can turn to in joy and sorrow, in pain in agony or in, in, in just anything that we're facing in our life, God, you are always available to us and you shine a bright light in this dark world. And we just rest in that together. We thank you for what we have learned um, so far. We look forward to how you will dr- pull it together as we, um, as we engage in summary and review over the course of the next two weeks. Um, we just look forward to what you will teach us. God, as we are approaching um, a national holiday, we want to give all of our thanks and gratitude collectively to you, God. We are so grateful that you have chosen us, that you have adopted us into your family, that you have, sh- have given us a full inheritance through Christ. And it's just an amazing gift to consider and to think about. And so we want to just as, a, as we're about to approach a time of buying and giving gifts, we want to receive this gift with complete, humble gratitude. And we ask you, God, to continue to cultivate in us hearts of gratitude. Now, would you uh, speak through your servant, Jessica? Would you give us uh, a clear word? Would you help us to hear, have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand what you would have for us? Would you give us courage together to live that out? We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to turn the podium over to Jessica Skaggs. Good morning, ladies. It, it, oh, thank you. It's so great to be back with you. 
today to look deeply into the last part of our story. Colleen did a wonderful job last week asking us to consider who Absalom, Hannah, and David were listening to, and then to reflect on who we are listening to. And today we finish our book. Next week, Amy's going to walk us through the reflection on our whole study as we think through what God has taught us and intentionally fix it in our hearts. The last four chapters of 1 and 2 Samuel, as our homework reminded us, forms an epilogue to the whole book, a beautiful and deliberate mosaic of many types of ancient literature organized for a specific purpose. Our homework did a good job of showing that the overall composition of this section is in a chiastic framework, a new word for our study group today. Um, these are used often in the Bible, and in fact, the whole books of, well, First and Second Samuel were written as one book, are laid out in a chiasm as well. Uh, simply a sequence of ideas laid out and then repeated in reverse order, um, creating in the structure will make a mirror effect. So it gives preeminence towards the middle section as the most important part. This four-chapter section isn't chronological, and it doesn't end with David's death. Um, it ends in a more dramatic place, suggesting that this is not primarily a biography of David's life. Rather, the stories in this closing section are picked, chosen, and intentionally organized to shine a spotlight on the core question it is trying to answer. Who is a suitable king for Israel? So let's see how the text answers that question. <clears throat> Chapter 21 tells the story. Here we go. Okay. Victoria uh, did this slide for me, so the bold ones are the ones that we're talking about as we go through, because I want to keep that format in your brain as we walk it. Um, Chapter 21 tells the story of the Gibeonites who had been slaughtered at some point by Saul. Um, the text doesn't tell us, but obviously Saul had not consulted the Lord in this decision. If you were with us last fall when we studied Joshua in depth, the Gibeonites and their relationship with Israel would be very familiar to you. And our homework had us go back and read this passage in Joshua 9. We saw that the Gibeonites actually tricked the Israelites into a peace treaty. So like me, you might have asked yourself, if these foreigners had tricked their way out of annihilation, why would the Lord care if they were slaughtered? Why would he inflict a long famine on his own people for these tricksters? And yet the Lord clearly tells David, no, there is blood guilt on Saul and his house. God's faithfulness in covenant relationships is on display here. The Lord honors the covenant Joshua and the Israelites made with this foreign nation as he honors all covenants. Later, though the Gentiles, read us, have no worthiness in themselves, the Lord would graft all of us who believe in his son Jesus into his inheritance. Back to our story, the Gibeonites here asked for harsh retribution, seven sons of Saul to be hanged. David upholds his covenant, protecting Mephibosheth, honors the bones of the victims, Saul and Jonathan, and the Lord responded to the plea for the land. So in light of this story, let's look at our question. Who can serve as king of Israel? And it is a king who upholds his covenants. 
sees justice accomplished and intervenes on behalf of his people. We see the gruesome cost of sin that no one is exempt from paying here and in our next story. So jumping back to our chiastic framework, um, I'm going to stick with the mirror passage in chapter 24. Our king's sin again affects all of Israel. Without any guidance from the Lord, David initiates an unauthorized census of his army. Um, Our homework reminded us that a census isn't always a sinful thing, but this one was probably motivated by David trusting too much in his army rather than the Lord. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them. It begins. Earlier in this study, we looked at two other times when God's anger broke out against Israel. In 1 Samuel 6, uh, when the Philistines returned the ark to Israel, and 70 men looked into it and they died. And 2 Samuel 6, when God killed Uzzah for reaching out to brace the ark with his hand. Remember that in the case of Uzzah, David was angry and dismayed at why God responded the way he did. But adding those two examples with the two from today's passage, in all four instances, the Lord has already given instructions, and his people either disregard or minimize the need for obedience. But in today's passage, we see a change in David, who's grown in his understanding of God's holiness. His response now, rather than dismay, is swift repentance. He does not need a prophet to come and reveal his sin to him, as he did with Bathsheba back in chapter 12. I'd like to spend the bulk of our time today talking about the Lord's anger. I know, you're welcome. (laughs) Um, This is a weighty topic, and one that can bring out a strong response in us. When I first started reading the Old Testament early in my faith, I wondered why God was always killing innocent people. Why was he so angry? He didn't seem to be the same God I had heard about in the New Testament, a God of love and mercy. In response, I, like David, was sometimes indignant. Sometimes I incorrectly reasoned that God had changed by the time Jesus arrived. Thank goodness, after all, these are innocent people. This was because most of my thoughts about God were shaped by culture, little snippets of truth I had heard and distorted, and my own opinion. Since I didn't read the Bible, I didn't understand my sinfulness. I thought I was a pretty good person. My family was heavily involved in church growing up, but it wasn't until someone sat me down at 23 and walked me through some of the Bible's passages about sin that I was forever changed. And I hope that looking at this attribute of God will bear fruit in your life too. I'm indebted to J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, for helping me express these thoughts well. Three chapters in the middle of his book are a wonderful resource for more information if you're interested. They're called God the Judge, The Wrath of God, and Goodness and Severity. One of the most striking things about the Bible, Packer says, is the vigor with which both the Old and New Testament emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. 
he goes on to point out that, contrary to my earlier opinion that God had changed, the New Testament actually intensifies Christ's role as the divinely appointed judge in the day of wrath. Christ says of himself in Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates, separates the sheep from the goats. And again in John 5, Christ says of himself, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. A couple of things make this hard for us to understand. First, there's a pernicious idea in our culture that paints God as a sort of cosmic Santa Claus. This thought makes much of God's goodness and tries to ignore his wrath. Packer points out that the problem with this thinking is that when you separate God from the attributes of judge and wrath, that you have to deny that he has any direct relationship with or control over evil. You're left with a God who cannot help his children in times of trouble and is helpless in the face of evil. After all, Santa Claus's only recourse in the face of those who do wrong, evidently, is that they get a lump of coal instead of gifts. And yet the Lord says of himself in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, that he is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. Oh, love and faithfulness, I'm sorry. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. And Hannah said of him in 1 Samuel 2, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. End quote. The Lord has power over evil and will bring all to account. Second, we can sometimes mix in aspects of our own flawed human personalities. And we think maybe because our own wrath often leads us to foolish, impulsive, and sinful reactions that this is also true of the Lord. But Numbers 23.19 says it this way, God is not human that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is only angry when it is right and just to be angry. Now, if you have a parent or a close relationship that used or uses anger in an unjust way, the idea of God's wrath might be extremely uncomfortable to hear about. This would be a topic to spend some time intentionally separating sinful memories and behavior and contrasting that with the perfect justice of the Lord. We have wonderful mentors in our women's ministry who would love to meet and walk through this with you if you're interested. 
Taking time to intentionally meditate on God in contrast to your experience could bring great healing and lead to deeper worship. Our God is not a cruel God, nor is he arbitrary in his wrath. Ezekiel 18.30-32 says, Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, everyone according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. A third and incredibly powerful reason that the wrath of God can be hard to comprehend is the deceitfulness of sin. We love to gloss over sin, to hide its hideousness with charming words and excuses. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And in response to that verse, Martin Luther wrote, We love the flesh and the sensations of the flesh and also riches and possessions. But we love nothing more ardently than our own feelings, judgment, purpose, and will. End quote. We are the ones that make the choices that lead to God's wrath. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Paul teaches in Romans 1.9-31 that people are given up to their own corrupt preferences. So, it is our conscious choices that persist and grow more independent of God and his ways. To underline the severity of our problem, Scripture often remind us, reminds us that the Lord is slow to anger. Um, these are just a few verses that explicitly, explicitly use the phrase, slow to anger. But I couldn't even include the massive stories that he just shows it to be true in how he acts towards us. So, by the time the Lord acts on his anger, it's bad. Romans chapter 3 teaches us that the idea of innocent people, the ones I had incorrectly sympathized with before I understood sin, is a myth. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that no one does good, not even one. And Romans 2.5 says it this way, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his judgment, his righteous judgment, will be revealed. God's anger leads to justice, punishment according to merit. He rewards good with good and evil with evil. His wrath is the correct and right judgment for our sin. If we want God to be just, and we do, Amends must be made for sin. Now, I can see that you are bursting to ask, how do judgment by works and free grace work together? Well, Mary Alice, I'm glad you asked. Um, if amends or payment must be made for sin to restore a right relationship with God, who can pay that price? In the Old Testament, God had graciously given the Israelites provisions for restoration in the form of the blood of animal sacrifices for their sin 
But these sacrifices had to be made each and every time a sin was committed to restore their standing with the Lord. When Christ made his sacrifice for us on the cross, it serves as payment for all sin, for all time, for all who would accept him. In the person of Christ, through this plan created from the beginning of time, not one attribute of God is diminished or diluted. On the contrary, the justice and judgment, grace and mercy of God are all magnified and satisfied in the person of Christ. In Romans 3, 25 through 26 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, a payment for our sin, through faith in his blood. He did it to demonstrate his justice, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. If we want to truly know God, we need to understand the weightiness of sin and God's wrath towards it. Though I had grown up my whole life attending church, it wasn't until I was an adult uh, that I had been told about personal sin, the payment required, and accepted Christ's death as a substitution for my sin, that Christ became my king. Truly, there is no other way to God than understanding Christ's sacrifice and asking for that sacrifice to cover your sins. My life was transformed, and I began to look at him to define who I was, the decisions I made, and he continued to deepen my understanding and relationship with him. So I will ask you, do you need to respond to Jesus? Now, when I read the Bible, um, the Old Testament particularly, the wrath of God has become an idea that both makes me tremble and brings comfort, since I know that evil and injustice in our world are deeply important to God and will be reckoned with. As I've continued to study God's word, I now have a growing amazement at the patience, countless mercies, generous acts, and forgiveness the Lord extends again and again to sinful, stiff-necked people. So, coming back to our story, David in chapter 24 does not try to hide his sin as he did with his adultery, but immediately agrees with God and repents. Nevertheless, there are still consequences. The plague that kills 70,000. The cost of his sin is enormous. His response, though, reveals his heart towards his king, a heart of repentance. So again, we ask, who is a suitable king for Israel? Um, an imperfect but repentant king who takes the wrath of God seriously. A king who stands in the gap for his people and takes punishment on himself. which is a beautiful foreshadowing of Christ. Now, in this case, David has put Israel in this position because of his own sin. And so, Israel looks forward to the king who is without sin and therefore becomes the only perfect and complete substitution for us. Christ stands in the gap for us, but as a sinless substitute. As this last chapter of Samuel closes, this last chapter of Samuel closes with hope at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. This is the site where David's son Solomon will build the Lord's temple. 
God's people will worship and meet with the Lord on this site for a time, a a meeting place founded on repentance and redemption. So back to our chiasm on the um, uh, B section there. Chapters 21 and the second half of 23 record victories and lists of David's mighty men. Of note in these chapters is an honorary note for Uriah, who is included as one of David's elite 30 soldiers. A grim reminder of how far sin and its desire to be concealed had taken David. And the mention of the six-fingered man who was slain by Jonathan, the son of Shimei, which evoked memories for me of Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. So how do these two sections help answer our question? Think back to the purpose of having a king from 1 Samuel chapters 8 and 9. Um, According to 1 Samuel 9.16, Saul was anointed to deliver God's people from the Philistines, a job he failed to complete. David, however, has fulfilled this purpose and rightly ascribes his success to the Lord multiple times here, saying, and the Lord worked a great victory. So, who is a suitable king for Israel? He is a warrior king who successfully defeats Israel's enemies by the power of his king rather than his own strength. So, the last section here um, is the middle section of our chiasm, uh, Samuel 22 through 23.7. The author has intentionally ordered the pieces here to give preeminence to David's praise and worship of his king. David here is praising and reflecting that God delivered on his promises. Our God is a powerful and promise-keeping Lord. Chapter 22 describes the Lord in terms of the most powerful elements and forces in nature. He is a rock, a quaking earth, quaking heavens with smoke pouring from his nostrils, burning coals, Dark clouds, darkness, bolts of lightning, thunder. God is described as reaching down. He rescues from powerful enemies. He supports David. He's a lamp, a refuge, a help, a shield. Of note in this section is chapter 22, 21 through 25, when David describes the Lord's help as a reward for the cleanness of his hands. And all the ladies in the room say, What? Since the book of Samuel has been very clear in recording David's sins, glossing over them is not the intent here, but rather the graciousness of the Lord who provided provisions for receiving forgiveness of sins and complete redemption. My dictionary defines redemption as compensating for the faults or bad aspects of something. And when God redeems, There is no more complete redemption. So when we come to the Lord for forgiveness, our sins are as far as the east are from the west, as Psalm 103 puts it. This is a God of power who reaches down in graciousness to compensate for our faults. To think of him as Santa Claus is to dreadfully diminish his character and power. And once again, we ask the question the author intends for us to ask. Who is a suitable king for Israel? It is a king who worships the true king in all his power. This four-chapter epilogue ends the book of Samuel and gives us a clear answer to who can suitably serve as king of Israel. 
a king who upholds his covenants, sees justice accomplished, intervenes on behalf of his people, a repentant king who stands in the gap for his people, takes punishment on himself, a warrior king, a king who worships. This book is not primarily a biography of David's life. It's about David's God and his time as a vassal king, as Rebecca Cagle pointed out to us a few weeks ago. In the next four Old Testament books, 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, David becomes the standard for how God's people measure subsequent kings of Israel. And sisters, with a few notable exceptions, it's a depressing parade. Instead of godly leaders, God's mercy and faithfulness take center stage as they waited for Christ, Israel's forever king. David is imperfect, but consistently pointed to God. Samuel pointed to him. Hannah pointed to him. Jonathan pointed to him. The author pointed to him. And as I was preparing for today, I spent a good amount of time praying about a question that I had. Lord, why this study right now in 2020? We are a nation that is in a season of loss. We're also extremely divisive, angry, thin-skinned, unwilling to listen or love, sometimes even afraid of the other, those who think differently from us, and isolated with a capital I. Clearly, we are in a wilderness time. More than ever, the darkness around us needs to hear about this Lord of power who acts righteously in all his judgments and anger, and who mercifully has provided a way for all of us to come to him. Will you point to him? Will you speak of what you have learned from this study time to a dark and dying world? Let us pray. Lord, help us to be women who point to you, women who know your son Jesus and joyfully receive his substitution for your sins as our most precious gift, women who speak about you out in a dark and dying world. We can only do this with your help. For your namesake, Lord, do not delay. Amen.